can we dive into our, our study today? We're going to be, if you have the Coffee House Bible, page 832, Matthew chapter 7. This is part three of a series that we've called Wronged. Wronged. Have you ever been wronged? Yeah. The part one of wronged was about anger in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus talks about anger. We had some really insightful things to say. Two of them really stood out to me. One, he said that anger is love in motion. Anger is love in motion. But the second really insightful thing that I learned from Reed, anger has really bad aim. So it's love in motion, but oftentimes it gets aimed at or misdirected to people that never were supposed to be on the other side of that love, or it shows up in ways that aren't very loving. Part two, we looked at Jesus' command to love your enemies. And really the bottom line there is that this is a really countercultural command. Anger's tough. Loving your enemies is even tough for, for Christians. It's just totally out of the ordinary for us. So what do we do? The, the line from last week was, when we're wronged, we, do you remember it? Kelsey remembered it because I told her yesterday. That's not even fair. When we're wronged, we retaliate with love. When we're wronged, we retaliate with love. Today's part three, and really all these texts are from the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, and every one of them are about when we're wronged. But it seems like oftentimes when we're wronged, we want to say, hey, 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 don't judge me. Have you ever said don't judge me? Okay, Marcus has. Some of us have. Have you ever heard somebody say, don't judge me? Can somebody say that for me just with attitude? Okay, all right, we got a few <laughs> As a preacher, I, I get the hostility there. Don't judge me. This is like, finally, we found the one that's not countercultural, it seems like. Anger, we don't have any cultural tools for dealing with anger. Love your enemies, that's so countercultural. Don't judge me. Now that feels, that feels right on cue with our culture. This is something we hear all the time. It's kind of like that live and let live, you do you, that kind of spirit. I think, though, that there may be more going on in this text than just don't judge me. Whenever non-Christians describe Christians, they use two words most frequently. This is Barna's big study released a couple of years ago, and it was groundbreaking. You've never heard this before. Non-Christians think Christians are judgmental and hypocritical. I was like, did we really need a big study to know that? I think most people already knew. Most Christians already know that about other Christians. And so, of course, non-Christians. But there's this, it's in the air. and It seems to fit. Uh, the irony with non-Christians saying that Christians are judgmental and hypocritical is that the only basis to judge Christians as judgmental and hypocritical is Jesus with the text that we're about to look at. And so if this is resonating, just know that it resonates with Jesus too. So he says in the paragraph we're going to look at today, do not judge. And he says, you hypocrites, you keep judging. So Jesus is right on cue here. But before we cast stones at judgmental people, I want to just explore some of the limits of do not judge. Okay, the limits of do not judge. Let me ask this question. What happens when we judge those who judge us? We immediately become the judgmental ones. There's this almost self-defeating nature to people who condemn others for condemning, to judge others for judging. And in realities, I've got dear friends who've been really hurt by people who wield non-judgment as a weapon. You can be really hurt by people saying, I get to do whatever I want. Don't judge me. I, I, you may have been hurt like that. It, it becomes self-defeating, almost ironic. So the limits of do not judge, it shows us the self-defeating nature, but maybe more personally, more relevantly. When we're wronged, we know we're in the right. So let me explore kind of what, what I'm trying to say here. You do you always has a limit, right? Live and let live always has a limit. And normally it's, you can do whatever you want as long as what? 
you don't hurt anyone. By that phrase, as long as you don't hurt anyone, we really mean something more broad and something more specific. We mean something really broad. Uh, you, you, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone or offend anyone or really even disagree with anyone. It, it gets really, really broad. And then as long as you don't hurt anyone really means something more specific. It's me. You can do whatever you want as long as you don't impact me. That's really what I care about here. But when we're wronged, we know we're in the right. And so when we're in the right, we kind of stand a little taller, we raise up and we look down. And it's so much easier to judge when we're in the right than it is when we're in the wrong. The very thing, the do not judge, it becomes most kind of self-defeating when we're in the right, because we know we're in the right when we're wronged. Let me try to say this a different way. There was a, an article by Sabine Birdsong. It's called To Hell With Forgiveness Culture. And what she's referencing is this idea, what she calls a spiritual fairy tale of redemption that is Christianity. And she says it's just another version of victim blaming. To hell with forgiveness. It's pretty strong because culturally we know when we're wronged, we're in the right. How could you stand up to somebody who's been wronged? There's this great injustice that swells in our hearts whenever we're wronged because we know we're in the right. There's a free pass if you've been wronged to judge. So if someone has wronged you, there's not just a pass, there's an expectation. There's a demand. There's an imperative. You have to judge. Do not judge has a limit, culturally speaking. When you're wronged, we know we're in the right, and if you're in the right, judge away. But when you're not in the wrong, where does that leave you? Well, it must be nice, I, I think, in some ways, from this perspective, to have, just have no need for redemption to have never made a mistake, to have never wronged anyone. But in truth, that's not me. I've wronged many people. And so I want to explore one other half of this. When we're wronged, we know we're in the right, and we feel like we have to judge. But on the flip side, we often wrong because we're in the right. We often wrong because we're in the right. Every parent knows this feeling. It's easy to find wrongdoing with kids and little ones. But it seems to me far easier for me to end up in the wrong more than my kids. Like my punishment of my kids, my reaction to their immaturity is far more immature than theirs ever was. It's not just parents though. I've seen it in my own life and many other places. I've been wrong, therefore I know I'm in the right. And so now in my self-righteous attempt to prove I'm right, I can easily act in the wrong. Steve Cusson one of my favorite little books, he says, the judgment, it limits, it shrinks, it creates distance. It makes assumptions about a person that may not be true. We hold a variety of judgments, even people who celebrate how non-judgmental they are, still shrink people. And so if you've ever been misunderstood because you wronged someone slightly, and their swell of anger comes up, and they want to judge you, and you say, well, that's not even what I meant to do. I may have done something, but I didn't do all of that. Don't you know what I was going through? I had a hard day. I was really tired. I needed a Snickers. I hadn't eaten anything in a while. They're assuming the worst in me. And the result is that now I'm wronged again. So you've been wronged by me. Now I've been wronged by you. And it's just this endless loop. But I think Jesus' approach to judgment speaks to all of us here. We need somebody to speak to us for all the times that we've been wronged. It, because when we're wronged, we stand up and we look down, and then we easily do the wrong that we are seeking to avoid. But on the other hand, we also need some mechanism that ends the cycle, that breaks the loop. And I think Jesus is probably the best place to go here. After all, he's the one that attacks the judgmental and hypocritical religious people of his day. 
And so what would it look like to practice what Jesus says when he says, do not judge? And I guarantee there's a whole lot more than what our culture seems to see on the surface. There's a whole lot more. When Jesus says, do not judge, we want a period, but Jesus gives a whole paragraph. Let's look at the whole paragraph today, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, page 832. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge. Let's just explore do not judge for just a minute. This week I sat down my son Fletcher, and I said, Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged. What does that mean? This is my commentary according to an eight-year-old. And he says, well, judge means where you tell somebody if they're right or wrong, if they've done good or bad. And so Jesus says, don't do that. That's pretty good reading. Do you really think Jesus doesn't want us to tell people when they've done right? Do you really think Jesus wants to avoid telling people when they've done wrong? And he's like, no. He's like, I'm confused. I was like, good. Yes, exactly. Uh, Scott McKnight, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, everything hinges on what this word judge means. He says, the problem is that judge is a very expansive word. Culturally, a judge can be someone who's elected to office, who sits in a black robe, who's like handling, but it can also be like a celebrity who's judging people wearing costumes, right? It's a very wide range of what we mean by judge. The same thing in the first century. Judge could be knowing good and evil. It could be lawsuits. It could be somebody in government. It could be issuing final damnation. All of those is how Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, uses the word judge. To judge at its root, though, it basically means to distinguish between something, to tell something apart, right and wrong, good and bad, sheep and goats. There's a lot of different ways that judge gets used, but it's to tell the difference between something. And what Jesus says here is that something must be judged and something must not be judged. In the book, the most misused verses in the Bible, number one on the list was this verse, do not judge. The author says, these famous words from Jesus are recited by many, but profoundly misunderstood. The verses are used, he says, as a shield for sin and a barrier to keep others at bay. You can't get in here, don't judge me. Allowing themselves to justify living as they please without any regard for moral boundaries or accountability, but... What we'll see in this passage is that Jesus forbids some types of judgment and requires others. He commands us to judge. In fact, he commands us to judge in this same paragraph. Verse 6, we'll look at it in just a second. He says, you have to be able to tell the difference between the, the pigs, don't cast your pearls before pigs, and the dogs. He says, some dogs may come and they may bite you. It's not just this paragraph. In the next paragraph, he does the same thing. He says, you will know them by their fruit. He says, you have to be able to tell the difference between this type of plant and that type of plant. You have to be able to tell the difference between a sheep and a wolf. He says, you you have to judge. It's all over Matthew chapter 7. Not just Matthew chapter 7. It's actually the rest of this gospel. But maybe more importantly than him commanding us to judge is that he's saying that I will judge. So Jesus is the judge, Matthew 25. He's the one that separates sheep and goats. In 25, 46, he says he's going to send some away to eternal punishment, some to eternal life. In Matthew chapter 7, he says we don't even know what his judgments are. He says a lot of people at at the end of the time, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? Or Lord, Lord, when did we do all these things? His judgments are going to be so surprising. So there's more to the story when it comes to judging. Judging isn't bad. Jesus is a judge. Jesus commands us to judge in some ways. So what is he actually forbidding here? It seems to be that he's saying, I want you to discern but not condemn. Do you know the difference between discernment and condemnation? You can feel the difference between discernment and condemnation. Discernment is where you kind of tell the difference between right and wrong. Jesus wants us to tell the difference between right and wrong. To to call sin, sin is a very Jesus thing to do. But then to condemn someone is to step into a place, into a seat that is not yours. Uh, Dale Bruner in his commentary says, don't judge is open to several interpretations. It certainly doesn't mean don't discern or don't think. The next immediate commands 
it, it, the next paragraphs, it all shows that you have to distinguish. All discernment involves the formation of judgments. And so he says, instead, we are asked to surrender the judgment of condemnation. Asked to surrender the judgment of condemnation. We're asked to set aside a judgment that doesn't have love. A judgment that doesn't have mercy. Stott, he says, it doesn't mean to assess people critically, but to judge them harshly. Let me just give a few examples to kind of illustrate. Imagine you went to the dentist and they were checking out your gums. Maybe Nisha's doing a little work on you. And they're telling you, like, well, we found this cavity here. And we found this unhealthy gum over here. Do you see that that's actually saying this is good and this is bad? This is why you're here. But there's a difference between a dentist giving a discernment and help and right and wrong, good and bad, a, a bill of health and a sign of sickness. There's a difference between that and then a condemnation and a judgment that comes by the, the type of moral person you are because of your lack of flossing, right? Those are totally different. Another illustration. Uh, I keep telling stories from my last trip. I don't know when that's going to stop. But a couple of weeks ago, we were at Rocky Mountain National Park, and my kids love to do Junior Ranger books. Junior Ranger books, it's sort of like homework at the park. But our kids love the badges that they get and they learn along the way. It's just, it's just part of what we do every time we go to a state park or a national park. So they fill out the workbooks and they go to the desk and they turn them in, as we've done over and over and over. And their experience of this ranger was way more condemnation then normally you turn them in, they help you kind of think through. But my children and me were so unsettled by the level of investigation that happened from, from turning in these little books. It was this air of condescension to a child. And he didn't even want to look up. I didn't either. Kelsey didn't look up, I don't think. But do you see the difference between, yes, here are my answers. Yeah, that's great. Good answer. Tell me a story about that versus the unsettling condescension. We can all tell our own story of the difference between discernment and condemnation. So Jesus is saying yes to some form of judgment and saying no to other forms of judgment. But mostly he's saying, remember that I'm in the place of judge. We are not in the place of judge. And if you want a commentary on what Jesus says here, one of the best places to go is his brother's letter. Jesus had lots of brothers and sisters, it seems like, on his mom's side. And, hey, on his dad's side, we are all brothers and sisters, but his brother James wrote a book in the first century, and James is riffing a lot on what he says about judgment. And so as you're reading the book of James, James 2 and 3 are really harsh. He's coming strong against sin. But then he says this. He says this about, he says, brothers and sisters, don't slander anyone. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James has no problem telling the difference between right and wrong and holding people accountable. And yet, he says, don't slander, don't judge. This is kind of the framework. What we see in Matthew chapter 7 is that it starts with a command. And then the command is going to have three movements. So the, the command at its, at its base is do not judge. But then there's three movements. I'm going to look at the first movement right here. He says, do not judge or what? Or you'll be judged. And so there's, there's something about the measure that's used. Look, look at his language here. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged. Now, this is right on brand for Jesus. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He says, judge unto others as you would have them judge unto you. When you judge, you're going to be judged. Jesus is really sensitive to hypocrisy. In, in the gospel, it seems like everybody gets mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so outsiders, broken people, sinners, tax collectors, 
enemies, Romans, everybody gets his mercy except one group. It's the hypocrites, the ones who hold themselves above judgment, the ones who put themselves in the place of judge. He says, if you judge, you will be judged. It's the hypocrites, it's the Pharisees. He's constantly after the Pharisees. Nearly every time the Pharisee shows up, Jesus is going to call them hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 23, at the end of the gospel, there's just a whole chapter where he's just calling them hypocrites over and over and over. He calls them snakes. He says, like, you are like your father, the devil, in, in the gospel of John. He's so sensitive to people who have a different standard for themselves than they do for other people. When you judge, he says, then you'll be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The measure. Measure. So you can picture like the scales of justice, like the old Roman symbol. You could picture something that's just out of alignment. It's like imbalanced. And so there's a little bit of irony here. Judge and you will be judged. And so a lot of us are like, well, why don't we just not judge ever? What if there's no measure? This reminds me of when Jesus was washing feet. Remember, Peter's like, no, 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 I don't want you to wash my feet. And Jesus is like, no, I need to, Peter. Peter's like, all right, wash my whole body also. And it's like, no, you've gone too far here. (laughs) There's some standards that we actually need for life and community. Can you imagine a community where love was the same thing as hate? There was just no measure whatsoever where to care and to abuse were the same and morally equivalent, this is not what we want. You see, we actually want a place that has measures and we want a place that has mercy. So the measure you use will be measured back to you. It's, John Stott says, judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but it's rather a plea to be generous. Here's James' commentary. Remember, James has a really great commentary throughout. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, the law of liberty, some translations say, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Can you all say that last line? Mercy triumphs over judgment. When Jesus is talking about the measure, he says it needs to be consistent. You have to apply the same standard to other people as you apply to yourself. But he says, maybe even more than consistent, it needs to be merciful. The measure that you use, he says, how about the measure of mercy? Do not judge. This is Luke's version of the same text. And you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus says, I want mercy, not sacrifice. So where do we find mercy for our measure of judgment? It seems to be we find it in Christ. You see, when we plead for mercy... We forfeit our right to judge. When you come to Jesus to be your life, you forfeit the right to stand against others. Psalm 116 is this plea for mercy that Jacob read for us. God, be merciful. I'm, I'm broke. I'm desperate. I need you. God, be merciful. I'm pouring myself out here. Then when God answers, do you remember what he says? He says, we hold up the cup of salvation. So we are people who just shared the bread and shared the cup. We have held up the cup of salvation, and we are the people who have received mercy. And that means we we have no leg to stand on that makes us feel like we're higher than somebody else. The measure is found at the table. It's found in Christ. It's in the gospel. Just over and over, the New Testament says, you forgive, how? How do I forgive? As you've been forgiven. Show mercy, how? As you've received mercy, you're imitators of your father, your children. We are daughters and sons of God most high, and we're called to imitate how he's treated us. 
We are the people who needed the Son of God to die for us. That's who we are. We are the people that the Son of God died for. How could we judge? Kelsey, I love your story from Freedom Prayer. I just want to tell it mostly for the recording because everyone here already heard it. Uh, but in, in Freedom Prayer, there's often this process of forgiveness, the forgiveness cycle where you renounce judgment. And normally, all of us have something we're holding on to that people have wronged us. And in Kelsey's Freedom Prayer, she shared that for her, it, it almost was symbolized, pictured like a bag of debts, like that somebody owed her. Somebody had wronged her, and she was holding on to this bag, and she finally was ready to hand it to Jesus in prayer. And what are you going to do with it, Jesus? And he goes, and he puts it at the foot of his cross, and then as he does, he puts it right next to another bag. It was a bag of her debts. This is, maybe not in prayer, but this is every one of our experiences. There is no other way into the kingdom except to lay down your bag of debts at the foot of the cross. And if you've laid down your bag of debts at the foot of the cross, how could you carry around somebody else's? The measure you use will be measured back to you. And so the measure for people in the kingdom is mercy. It's mercy. The first piece, the first movement is to discover mercy, compassion. We'll come back to what that might look like. But there's a second movement here that shows up in our text in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? He says, all the time, there's a plank in your eye. It's, it's, so, it's, it's meant to be funny, obviously. Sawdust and plank, there's a board hanging out of your eyes. You're just talking with somebody. It's like you just turn your face and you just whack them in the face with it. It's, can you picture Jesus who was something like a carpenter or, or a craftsman with his dad? Can you imagine Joseph trying to teach Jesus like how to measure and cut? He's like, ah, oh, Jesus, you actually need, and he's like, really, dad, do you want to go there? This is like a... Uh, Jesus knows what he's doing when it comes to, to boards and planks and sawdust. And what he says, you have to first deal with the plank, obviously. The, the plank, though. What is the plank? I, I found a few views here. Uh, some say that the plank is like where you do the same sin but worse. You do the same sin but worse. And, and sure, if that's the case, that's really bad. Romans chapter 2, it says, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. In the Roman church, he says, you Jews, you don't have an upper, upper leg to stand on. You're doing the same things that the Gentiles are doing. So maybe that's, maybe that's it. You're just doing the same thing but worse. I have hesitation here because it seems to me Jesus is assuming that everyone is doing worse. And I'm no mathematician, but it seems like on average, only half of people are doing worse. So that doesn't seem to fit what he's saying. So some say it's simply that, remember, you're a sinner too. McKnight, he takes this view. He says, this is just an exaggerated way of saying, not that we have worse sins, but that we have sins too. And hear me say, no doubt that's true. No doubt that's true. But it seems like half the time, the other person is probably going to have worse stuff in their bag. And so this still doesn't fully hold up. This isn't strong enough either because Jesus is calling them hypocrites. Hypocrites. And so is there another way? I think there is another way. It's in this, this clue in this word in verse 5. You hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who has two faces. They put a mask on. Um, the actors in the ancient world were hypocrites because they're, they're putting on different masks to play different roles. In the Sermon on the Mount, a hypocrite is somebody who the inside doesn't match the outside. But here I'm following Dallas Willard. How does Jesus know they're hypocrites? I actually think that's probably a question a hypocrite would ask. <laughs> I, w I should know. Willard, he puts it like this. How does Jesus know that those who judge in the sense of condemning others are hypocrites? Is it merely that there must be something wrong with us because there's something wrong with everyone? 
and that we shouldn't condemn others until we are perfect? Is it just the let him who is without sin cast the first stone routine? No, that's not it. Rather, it is because he understands what condemnation is and involves. Condemnation is the board in our eyes. He knows that the mere fact that we are condemning someone shows our heart does not have the kingdom rightness he's been talking about. Condemnation, especially with its usual accompaniments of anger and contempt and self-righteousness, it blinds us to the reality of the other person. We can't see clearly how to assist our brother because we can't see our brother. And we will never know how to truly help him until we've grown into the kind of person who doesn't condemn, period. Getting the board out, the plank out, is not a matter of correcting something that is wrong in our life so that we will be able to condemn our dear ones better, more effectively, so to speak. He says, no, getting the board out is to stop condemning altogether. So you can say it's, it's just people who have sin, or you can say it's people who have worse sin, as if then when you figure out that stuff, then you can actually condemn everybody if you want it. But it's condemnation itself that is the plank. I think this is a really good reading. And so he says, first, take the plank out of your own eye. And the plank here is the act of condemning other people. Because when we stand in judgment, assured of our position, it actually reveals a darker thing in the inside. We take an issue with somebody else's sin and it activates a deeper well within us. Let me, let me describe this. You've, you've heard me talk about different levels of sin from surface down to the depths, right? And so on the surface... There's what I've called blatant or gross sins. I get this from Robert Mulholland. Um, a blatant sin is something that even culture agrees with. Everybody knows that's wrong. Next level. Next level is deliberate sins. These are sins that you, you choose them even though you know they're unhealthy. Maybe there's disagreement about them. Some, that may be okay. Others, maybe that's unwise. And you choose it anyway. So deliberate. But the next level is what gets activated in condemnation. It's what Mulholland calls unconscious sins. Those deep, festering sores of our being. That's gross. You see, when we're wronged, our wounding kicks in. The ways that we've been wronged before gets reactivated. And we start operating from a different place than the one who's secure and knows their identity in Christ. When we're wronged, the, the, bat, the dark stuff that's been buried starts to creep up, almost like lava in a volcano. Not just our wounding, but our self-righteousness also gets activated. Because when we're wronged, we know we're in the right. And nobody can stand, nobody can say anything, because I know I'm in the right. Our pride kicks in. The more hidden a sin, the thicker the plank. A plank in the heart is really hard to see, but it will blind you all the same. And so when, when we're wrong, we see somebody else's sin, but you're not seeing everything. You're not seeing all the ways that your hurt is being freighted in and your pride is blinding you to the person in front of you. I think the plank is this self-righteousness, I mean, self kind of arrogance and ignorance. I think arrogance and ignorance are like the two wheels of the bicycle of judgment. Can you picture that? The two wheels of the bicycle of judgment are arrogance and ignorance. In other words, the self-righteous are rarely self-aware. They can't see it. And so when we're cutting off others from mercy, it's because we've cut ourselves off from needing mercy. We think we're in the right. We fall to our pride and we fall to our idols. Because we have no more need for the mercy of Christ, we stand on our own now. Thank you very much. But if there's mercy for me, then there's mercy for we. So, you've got to deal with a measure. He says, then you've got to deal with a plank. But do you see that, that word here? First. First implies second. So he says, you got to deal with the plank, take care of that. But he says, but there's still a speck. All right, let's, let's go here. Verse three. He says, 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the blank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is kind of a weird ending. I thought Jesus said, don't judge, and now you're saying you have to go and point out other people's stuff? Let me, let me pause. Before we go there, has anybody ever had a speck in your eye? It is miserable. It hurts. It reminds me of being at Pickwick Lake at the Nicholson's place. And the dock is like, got some pretty old boards. And it's just inevitable. Some child is going to get a splinter in their foot. Splinters in the foot are kind of like specks in the eye. It's just a little thing. And sometimes it's fine. It falls out and it's no big deal. Other times, it gets stuck and broken off, and then it starts festering. And what that child needs is somebody to come and help them and get this thing out. But man, is that a job, to try to get a splinter out of somebody's eye. What we need is somebody with clean hands and clear eyes who can look into the eyes of another and help them with something that's painful, annoying, and in the way. Clear eyes clean hands. First, take the plank out. You see, we want Jesus to have a period after do not judge, but he has a paragraph, and the paragraph leads us into confrontation. When I was a kid, I rode the school bus, and Miss Thompson was the bus driver, and she had a few catchphrases that everybody who rode the bus kind of caught on to. One of hers was M-Y-O-B. Mind your own business. She would just say somebody's name and then just say, M-Y-O-B. She didn't even have to look up into the mirror. She just like, she had it down. Mind your own business. That's what we want Jesus to say here, but that's not where he goes. Stop. Some people suppose that Jesus was telling us to mind our own business. This is not so. The fact that hypocrisy is forbidden us does not relieve us our brotherly responsibility towards one another. On the contrary, Jesus was later to teach that if our brother sins against us, our first duty, though usually neglected, is to go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. When you're wronged, go. When you're in the wrong, we looked at this, Matthew chapter 5, first go and reconcile. What about when I'm in the right? Go. You always have to go. You, there's a movement, though. You have to f- remember the mercy, remove the plank, and then get to the speck. McKnight, he says, many in our day climb under the moral shade of Matthew 7.1 to take the supposed high role of, I'm not the judge. But they miss the whole point of what Jesus is saying. Sin is sin, and no one can turn a blind eye to sin. So first implies the second, and the second is to remove the speck from your brother's eye. One ancient interpreter, John Chrysostom, he says, correct him, not as a foe, nor as an adversary, exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicine. You see, the postures change dramatically from condemnation. I'm in the right, you're in the wrong, to medicine. Confrontation is the way of the kingdom. This is what Jesus says to do, whether you're right or wrong. Whatever place you're in, the conflict, he says, you as a person of the kingdom have a responsibility to go. Go and see clearly. Paul says, you who are spiritual should go restore your wayward brother in a spirit of gentleness. You see, we need to be able to see the speck, but also to see them as a person, not as an enemy, not as an adversary, but as a brother and a sister. Last verse here, Jesus says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Jesus, what are you talking about? I thought we were talking about judging people. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What? This is one of those weird things Jesus says, and so most of the time we just skip it. I don't think this is meant to be an allegory where everything corresponds to something else. I think this is just a parable. And he's saying, sometimes, When you give somebody something really valuable, if they don't understand, they'll bite you. So 
Can I go back to Pickwick and Splinters? Oh, Lord, they will kick you in the face. They, they will attack you. They will scream at you if you're trying to get something out of their foot or out of their eye that they don't want you to do, even if it's what's best for them. So here's a Proverbs commentary on this. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. He says you need the mercy, but you also need the wisdom to know who and when and how to confront. Let's just put this together pretty quickly. And then I want to reflect on Jesus as a way of closing. When we look at Jesus' command, do not judge, it's not as simple as it may sound culturally. There's a lot here. And the first is a movement of discovering compassion that it needs to come before and it's far greater than condemnation. What I mean by compassion is where you just discover the measure of mercy. Compassion is where you realize not only that that other person had a bad day, but that I've had a lot of those too. Compassion is where you discover and remember how you've been treated by Christ. And compassion is this well that actually enables us to handle conflict in the way of Jesus in the kingdom. It, it starts with compassion. This is, again, all across the New Testament, this is the way of Jesus. Forgive. How? As we've been forgiven. Ephesians 4, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Since God so loved us, 1 John 4, we also ought to love one another. Do you see? The well of compassion is constantly refilled by God. He says, this is the place to start. This is the starting place to discover compassion, not condemnation. Even when you're wronged, maybe especially when you're wronged. In Freedom Prayer, we, we have this part of our forgiveness cycle that we call release judgment. Can I just share this prayer with you? Normally, we have the person pray this and we explain. The scripture says that judgment ultimately belongs to the Lord, not to us. Our job is to show mercy and to forgive. The Lord's job is to to hold people accountable and to practice judgment. So we're going to do this repeat after me prayer, and this is what it sounds like. Jesus, I am sorry and I repent for judging as if I knew all the reasons why they did what they did. I know I only see in part, please forgive me for taking your role and for judging. I give that job back to you. Your scales are perfectly balanced for justice and mercy. Mine are not. I know that my judgment cannot make me whole. And so I release this person from being the solution to my pain. Lord, would you be the solution to my pain? Would you heal my heart of judgment? Compassion is discovered in this humble act of coming into the presence of God. Compassion is greater than condemnation. Confession is greater than condemnation. The move is from the measure of mercy into removing the plank. The plank, the plank of condemnation is still there. But I want to show that there's an amazing gift in conflict. Because the things that are so clear on the surface is sinful. And even kind of just below in the topsoil are pretty easy to find as far as our sins go. But there are deeper levels of your sin that are only uncovered when you're wronged. God in his grace is giving a good gift of illumination. He is he's sending down something that is being brought up with all your woundings and all your past and all your pride. And he's showing you this is something that I really want to deal with. This may not be something you need to go and confess to another person. This may be something, though, that you need to confess to God. In conflict, God is giving the gift of deep spiritual insight. So confession is greater than condemnation. You can get that sin out of your life through conflict that you couldn't in any other way. So I, I love that oftentimes when I meet people and ask them about their spiritual walk, they will point to our confession of sin time on Sundays as this marker of what the Lord is doing in their life. Breakthrough happens when we humble ourselves and check our pride. Third, last one, 
Compassion is greater than condemnation. You have to discover the measure of mercy. Confession is greater than condemnation. You have to get that plank out of your eye. Otherwise, you're going to hurt somebody in how you're handling it. But confrontation is also better than condemnation. But confrontation has to look that gentle way of Jesus. It's, it's actually not a punishment. You're not trying to even the score. You're trying to get something that's frustrating and painful out of the eye of another. It's a, it's a service. That's it. And if you're not to the place where it's a service, you're probably not ready to confront. There's still more work to do in finding compassion and confession. But then when you can get to that place, you can give somebody else a gift. You may see this first. This may be what awakens you in all the hurt, all the ways that you've been wronged. But it may be something you need to hold on to until you can discover compassion. That gentle confrontation of helping a brother out to get that thing out of the eye. So, let's just reflect on Jesus for a minute. I want to invite you to kind of close your eyes and to pray. What we're going to do is just reflect on, on the king who became a servant. On the judge who was judged. In Matthew 18, Jesus is telling this story. He says, first you've got to go and you've got to make things right. And if that doesn't work, he says, here's the process. But then he tells this story of a man who was forgiven an immeasurable debt. He says he went to the king, and the king says, I, I forgive it. And then that man, he goes and he finds the guy who owes him 100 bucks, and he chokes him, and he says, pay me what you owe me. And the king says, no, this isn't. The king of the story becomes the servant of the story. The, the creator, the judge. This word judgment, Pilate, he says, I want you, y'all just go judge him. You handle it. Judge him according to your own law. And the king becomes a servant. The judge becomes judged, and he's wrongfully accused in every way. Can you just go there kind of in your mind's eye and just reflect for The Jesus, wronged, goes to the cross and he has mercy on his executioners. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Jesus went to the cross, scripture says, for our sins. And at the cross, Jesus judges and forgives justice, and mercy. Jesus brings the judgment. And with every stroke of the hammer, the judgment is put on the cross. It's put on him. And Jesus brings the mercy. Jesus says, I am making all things new. And he's doing that by making all things right. He says, you can entrust yourself to the one who judges justly, even if you've been wronged. Jesus on the cross is the master carpenter of our souls. He knows how to measure. He knows where to cut. He knows how to deal with planks and sawdust. The judge of all the earth was judged. So we say, who will bring any charge against whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Would you just pray to the intercessor at the right hand of God right now and just thank him for his mercy. Can someone give me something out loud? Tell Jesus how you're grateful.
Anybody else need help? Ask Jesus for help. Has anybody been wronged? Where do you need it? Where do you need help? Would you stand? Oh, God, thank you for your mercy. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us our sin. That we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.